Hello and welcome to our second edition of Understanding Yoga Studies. My name is Vicky Abnell. I'm an MA student here at SOAS and a member of the Centre of Yoga Studies. Today we're looking at the discipline of philology in relation to the study of yoga and I'm delighted to welcome Dr Jason Birch to help us explore the topic. Jason is a senior research fellow for the Light on Hatha Yoga project hosted at SOAS and the University of Marburg. He is also a visiting researcher on the Sushruta project at the University of Alberta. Jason has a degree in Sanskrit and Hindi from the University of Sydney and a DPhil in Oriental Studies from Balliol College, Oxford, where he studied under Professor Alexis Sanderson. His PhD dissertation focused on an early Raja Yoga text called the Amanaska and included a critical edition and annotated translation. Since then, Jason has been a research fellow at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies, taught across the globe on MA programmes in London, Los Angeles, Venice and South Korea, and worked as a postdoctoral researcher on the Hatha Yoga Project team. He is currently in the final stages of editing and translating six texts, never before critically edited, on Hatha and Raja Yoga, which are outputs of the project. In addition to all of this, Jason is also a co-founder here at the Centre of Yoga Studies and of the Journal of Yoga Studies. And he also collaborates with Jacqueline Hargreaves, who runs The Luminescent, an independent online hub that platforms the latest yoga studies research. Welcome, Jason. So I'm going to start simple, Jason, and just ask what the term philology means to you as a philologist. Mm. Well, I would say that philology is the careful reading of texts in their original language while attempting to understand them as their authors uh, and, and audience would have. So the philological study of a text written in India in the 15th century requires knowledge of both the language as well as the social and literary history of that time. Uh, when I say trying to understand a text as the author intended it, of course, that's that's an impossible thing to do if one is reading a text that was uh, written uh, you know, several hundred years ago because the world has changed so much and the way people think and live then is very different to how we live now. So I see uh, the philologist as a little bit uh, like a detective, if you like, looking at the evidence before him or her, trying to piece it together. It's, it's often uh, very incomplete, the evidence that we, that we have today for a text written hundreds of years ago. And then that person then tries to put him or herself in the shoes of the author, uh, living at, at that time, trying to understand what the author's motivation was, what the concerns were, why the author was writing the text, what the author wanted to communicate. And then at the same time, also trying to understand how the audience responded to the text. Um, particularly, it may not necessarily be at the time the text was written. Uh, of course, the reception history uh, can follow the text uh, for many centuries afterwards. So this, of course, relies upon the study of uh, commentators, of other literary works that may have referenced uh, the earlier work uh, and so forth. So one has to use all the evidence. Of course, a lot of it is um, uh, literary evidence, but also there's, uh, of course, material and visual evidence. 
uh, piece it all together and try to answer simple questions such as when the text was written, um, who was the author, who was it written for, uh, and what uh, historical um, impact did it have on, you know, on, on, on the genre. So it's, it's a task that's very difficult, you know, to, to edit a text that was written, say, in the 15th century requires knowledge of the language at that time. So, for example, with Sanskrit, if one learns um, spoken and written Sanskrit uh, of, of today, it's not necessarily much help for reading a text that was written uh, before the modern period because basically medieval and ancient works use different syntax and vocabulary. Also, with a lot of uh, uh, genres, particularly yoga, it's quite a technical vocabulary with a particular idiom at which one has to learn over many years of reading uh, the literature as well as sort of reading quite a quite a, a variety, as, as, as large a corpus as possible in order to understand it. Because each text tends to come at the subject from a slightly different perspective, often the texts are very skeletal. They only provide an overview of a particular topic and it's when you really put all of the texts together that you start to fill in some of the gaps and get a, a fuller picture uh, for, you know, for the various topics. I wondered um, if you could talk a little bit about the language learning aspect of philology and your journey. As you said, there's, you know, the challenge of how languages change over time, also the sort of technical vocabulary that you have to pick up if you're looking at a topic quite so niche as, as yoga. Um, so I wondered, yeah, if you could expand on that and, um, you know, for budding linguists out there, what your journey has been with um, perhaps learning Sanskrit and, and other languages and, and how that's evolved over time? Uh, my journey, well, I started uh, learning Sanskrit in 1996. I basically changed uh, the major of my arts degree from classics to uh, Sanskrit after the first year, basically because I had a Latin teacher who kept referring to cognate words and similarities in syntax between uh, Latin, Greek and Sanskrit, and that sort of piqued my curiosity about Sanskrit. I then started to read um, uh, German philosophers uh, who'd uh, sort of written about the importance of Sanskrit, uh, such as Arthur Schopenhauer, and that got me into Eastern philosophy as well. So I started to read more and more uh, about India, and that's when I uh, decided to talk to the uh, Sanskrit lecturer at Sydney University. And after a short time of talking to him, I realised that the study of Sanskrit and South Asian history was very different to the classics. And he told me about his own work and he'd been um, working on a commentary on a fairly, uh, as I now understand it, a fairly famous work by uh, Shantideva called the Bhattacharya Avatara, and um, he was working on a commentary which hadn't been studied by anyone else. So uh, that is quite quite a unique um, uh, sort of situation for uh, for the study of ancient languages. Because if you're studying the classics, of course, the Latin and Greek 
works have been studied over and over again, and it's uh, it's it's sort of more a matter of trying to comprehend the, the hundreds of years of scholarship uh, on particular texts, whereas to look at a text that nobody's really picked up before and then uh, you know try to understand it and 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 then edit and translate it is a completely different uh, set of challenges. And that uh, um, basically um, motivated me to study Sanskrit intensively uh, for three years at Sydney University. And then I went on to do my honours thesis where I edited uh, a Sanskrit text, and that led me eventually to making an application to do a PhD at uh, Oxford University with Alexis Sanderson, who wasn't studying yoga texts, but uh, was studying really the genre of literature most closely related to the type of yoga texts that I was interested in, Hatha and Raja yoga texts. And fortunately, I got funding to do my doctorate with Alexis at Oxford. And of course, that also enabled me to work with James Mallinson, who had also um, uh, studied with Alexis. So that was really the start of my serious um, uh, work on uh, uh, sort of editing yoga texts. But in answer to your question about uh, what what uh, advice or tips I might give to budding um, uh, language students, of course, one has to learn the language as well as one possibly can. Um, but I w- would also say that the study of philology or an understanding of philology is something that one has to acquire in addition to that, in addition to the language. So one can learn to uh, read or even speak Sanskrit, but the idea of picking up manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts, and then knowing how to work with them and uh, basically produce an edition and then an annotated translation and then how to analyse the text from from an academic point of view or you might say a philological point of view, to ask those type of questions. What was the author thinking? How did the audience, uh, how could the audience have understood this? Um, how does it fit into a broader corpus of texts? All of that is um, is really another field of knowledge on top of learning the language. And it's a set of skills that's often not um, valued as much as it should be because at, at universities, they don't tend to teach it separately. You're supposed to pick it up as you go along, particularly if you're working in um, classics or, say, in an Indian studies department. Um, and yet it's fundamental because it uh, it's really the discipline of philology that will distinguish um, a um, critical edition and an annotated translation from a publication that is um, presenting a text that's not critical or translated in a, in, in a, in a, in a rigorous way or in a, in a philological way, taking in, into account the historical context. So how to pick up those skills? Well, I think today, given the, the lack of training, formal training at universities as uh, the study of, of languages declines and there's sort of less funding and time spent on how to read historical documents in in a, in, in, in their uh, context. Um, I think one has to do it by reading with the few um, 
uh, experts in, in, in the particular field. Um, and, and I had that privilege with Alexis Sanderson and, and, and I've had the privilege of working with scholars such as James Mallinson and uh, um, uh, people of that calibre. And so I've basically, I think, learnt philology that way, uh, not through any particular formal course or degree. You mentioned a little bit about the importance of the philological aspect to to reading and to producing a a critical edition of a text, um, which I know you're working on a few at the moment. From someone who doesn't know how that process works at all, what would be the stages of that process? Like, where does it start, and how do you know you're done? Well, the first step is finding a manuscript of the of the text in in most cases. So if one comes across the name of the text or the name of the author, the usually the first thing one does is look it up, is look the name of the author or the text up in um, catalogues, library catalogues. Um, one usually starts with the NCC, the, the um, uh, Catalogus Catalogorum that was um, published by the University of Madras, and this is sort of a survey of all the catalogues that have been produced over the last 150 years in India. And this gives uh, information on um, the text, the author, and the manuscripts that are available. The next step beyond that is to look at more specific catalogues. So, for instance, if the um, new Catalogus Catalogorum tells you that um, the uh, Royal Asiatic Society of Bengal has a manuscript of the text that you're interested in, then you need to go to the catalogue of the Royal Asiatic Society of Bengal to see if there's more information on it. It might tell you, it might, if it's a descriptive catalogue, tell you um, more about the author, the introductory verses, the concluding verses and the colophon. Uh, then, of course, you've got to get a copy of it and Unfortunately, one of the the the, um, the biggest hurdles in our particular field is getting access to manuscripts. At times, some libraries are very helpful and will even send digital copies uh, by email remotely. Other libraries, even if you turn up in person and you have all the the right um, documentation, all the right letters and everything that they require, will still um, procrastinate and and uh, resist as much as possible in terms of uh, giving you access to material. And sometimes you'll walk away from a library uh, without anything, which is very um, uh, depressing if that's the only library that has a manuscript of the text that you want to look at. Um, but if one gets access to the manuscript and then scans of it, ideally coloured photographs, then the next step is to, uh, of course, read that uh, text, see what sort of condition it's in, and then start to compare it to whatever other um, material one has. So if that's other manuscripts of the text, that's that's ideal. Having uh, more than one manuscript allows one to do a critical edition in terms of comparing variant readings from one manuscript to another. In other cases, it may involve looking at citations of that work in uh, more recent texts. So often Sanskrit texts, particularly on yoga, will cite older works and so if you're looking at a text um, that's cited in many other works on, on on yoga then you can use those citations to get an idea of um, passages in the text 
that may be corrupt or problematic in the manuscript that you have. Uh, that's basically the process of collation where you take all of the manuscript material, you um, compare the, the variations, note the variations, and then use the testimonia to, to gain an understanding of, 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 of what you might, what's sometimes called a, a, a text copy of the work. Um, uh, and that's a starting point. So after the collating, that's really when the editing uh, starts and that's where the editor brings all of their knowledge of the field uh, testimonia and manuscripts to bear upon his or her understanding of the text. And usually um, that's a matter of assessing which variant readings are most likely those of the author. This is if the, if the editor is trying to recreate the earliest possible version of the text. Sometimes editors might be recreating a later version of the text, if that's of particular historical in interest. The transmission of texts in India tends to change them over time because they're copied by hand and they're often adapted and changed by subsequent readers. Of course, there can be several versions of a text. So if an editor, an editor basically has to choose which ver version of the text he or she's going to edit. And um, uh, that's, um, that usually happens after the, after the process of collating. And then it's usually after a draft edition has been established that the um, editor will then start to do a translation. And the translation will usually consist of lots of notes as well, which cover a lot of the um, uncertainties in the text, the obscure meanings of terms, um, uh, you know, uh, related um, citations in other works or, or, or parallel passages. All of that tends to make up the annotations that go with a scholarly uh, translation of a work. And I suppose it's, it's this whole process of um, collating and editing and translating that also helps the, uh, the scholar to formulate some idea of the historical context, the broader historical context of the work, by seeing its relationship to other texts, by perhaps uh, understanding its, its uh, content and how, how it uh, changed over time with the transmission of the text. All of this will usually go into the introduction of a critical edition to explain to the reader why um, the text is important, what's, uh, um, how it sort of fits within the broader history of yoga, um, and then the, the specific challenges that the editor faced in, in trying to uh, edit and, and translate the work. So that's a sort of an overview of the, a basic overview of the, of the policy, uh, of the process. But within that, there's also a lot of other elements like the, the software that's used today, um, to do collating and editing. Also collaboration is a very important part. Um, I would say anybody who thinks that they can collate and edit and translate a text on their own and just emerge from their office uh, with a you know, high quality publication is um, really fighting an uphill battle. I, I find that collaborating with other scholars and particularly reading the text with scholars who don't specialize in that particular area 
is a very valuable experience because when you start to read with um, people who specialize in other areas of Sanskrit, they, they're seeing your text from a different perspective. And that can be very helpful at times, particularly if there's something unusual or something that's, that's not quite standard in the text that you're looking at. Um, and it might be somebody from a different um, field of Indology or um, Sanskrit who immediately recognizes it and can tell you, ah, yes, well, what's going on here is the, you know, the poetic, a poetic mechanism that's often found in the texts that I work on. And that type of exchange I've found to be very valuable in the editing process, which um, is really a privilege that comes about when you have uh, funding for the work that you're doing. You can then arrange for workshops and to meet uh, people either um, virtually or in person uh, to work on the text that you're that you're editing. And that's and, a process you've gone through on the Hatha Yoga project and also for the Light on Hatha Yoga project that you're working on at the moment. Yes, yes. And can yeah, so you think have... of any examples where that collaboration, like you've described, has really shone a light on a text in a way that you weren't expecting? Oh, well, it's often in the detail. Yeah, so examples are not, are not so easy. Uh, but, but I would say um, if we were reading a text uh, in a group, it would become, uh, in a group of specialists, it would become apparent very quickly that, uh, that, that, that it's a valuable process. Um, but I would say that, it, yes, in the Hatha, with the Hatha Yoga project and the Hatha Pradipika project, we have the funding to organise workshops with large groups of scholars, which is, which is very valuable. But I would also encourage PhD students uh, or MA students to read their, you know, the text with as many... Um, uh, people, many sort of Sanskritists as they possibly can, going to India to work with um, Indian scholars can be very valuable. They'll they'll not only read Sanskrit and think about the text in different ways. You know, they'll they'll also you know often want to share their knowledge um, about the you know or their perspective, if you like, on the culture and the history surrounding it. So. Reading the text is often just a just a doorway into um, the culture and the broader history, and 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 that's um, that's really why um, philology is such a such a valuable pursuit for understanding uh, history, um, particularly in the case of yoga, where we have such a such a rich textual history. I imagine that process can be well can take quite a long time. Like you said, it's a sort of detective process of of uncovering and putting together a a text in a way that makes sense and does justice to all the different influences. Is that something that's become easier with technological advents in the last last few decades? Or has it just changed the process? Yes, in some ways it's easier, but uh, the challenges uh, are always there. The, the technology helps particularly with um, remote collaboration, being able to uh, work with scholars in different countries um, without necessarily getting together. So that's 
certainly changed, I think, current uh, uh, scholarly uh, collaboration. Also, the creation of machine-readable texts has uh, changed research enormously. Being able to search the Mahabharata, this huge epic text within 10 seconds, to bring up all sorts of um, references to obscure terms or, or to find parallel passages is an enormous advantage. But the practice of philology um, can't, uh, and, and I suppose the challenges of philology can't be uh, solved through um, computers and, um, and uh, those type of technological advancements. And I think it also makes philology a very difficult discipline to pin down because usually every text that one um, picks up and attempts to work on has different challenges. So you can't sort of, or it's very difficult to establish a set of guidelines or rules that you could just sort of go through when collating or editing a text because it really depends upon the material that you're working with. To give an example, uh, the Sushruta project that I'm involved with at the moment is working on uh, a ninth century a birch bark manuscript that preserves uh, an older version of the Sushruta Samhita than that which is uh, presented in uh, printed editions. Well, there we're dealing with a very old, valuable witness, and we have uh, two other more recent witnesses. Uh, and a lot of the interest, interesting part of the of the work is comparing it with uh, later versions of the Sushruta Samhita which have become um, widely studied in the 20th century and seeing the differences between them. But we're not actually dealing with, with, um, with, with much manuscript material. We're really just dealing with three manuscripts and then the, the, the printed editions. With the Hatta Pradipika project, uh, it's the very opposite situation where we have hundreds of manuscripts and it's actually quite a short text um, but a lot of our effort is going into acquiring material and then trying to assess um, the, the the manuscripts in a in a fairly um, systematic and rigorous way, because we really want to whittle down, if you like, the number of manuscripts that we're working on to those that are the most important, because otherwise we we just have too much manuscript material. Whereas with the Sushruta project, if we found another old manuscript of, of, um, of what we're calling the Nepalese version, that would be an amazing breakthrough, you know, to have another witness because we've only got three um, that we're working on at the moment. With the Hatta Pradipika, we, we pick up another manuscript and we sort of, you know, look at it and think, well, is this important? You know, do I really need to use this? And so then... You know, we, we, we're de- we've developed, we're developing a, a number of checkpoints, if you like, to see whether a manuscript has um, anything that's of value or whether it's just another version of the text that we are already familiar with. So I've worked on six texts for the Hatha Yoga Project, and I would say each text has its unique challenges. Um, some might be in the scripts that you're working with. For instance, the Yoga Taravali, most of the manuscript evidence for that was in uh, South Indian palm leaf grunter manuscripts, which were very difficult to read. And often, you know, with palm leaf, it deteriorates 
uh, after a couple of hundred years. And so you get a lot of um, damage to the manuscript. A lot of uh, um, parts of the text are missing or worms might have eaten, um, uh, you know, whole words and so forth. So that presents particular prob- uh, challenges. And then with, um, you know, another text, the Yoga Bija, there um, the challenge was trying to understand how the different recensions of the text uh, fit together because we found a very early recension of the text and then we were also aware of two later recensions and trying to see how the earlier one was transformed into the most recent recension was really a, a, um, an, an interesting or perhaps the most interesting part of working on that text. Um, How hard is it to come up with a dating for a text? Often you read as a student, this text is from, I don't know, first century BCE, but we have a manuscript from only the seventh or the eighth century, for example. So often it seems like the manuscripts or those witnesses that we have are from a much later date. So I guess as a philologist, how important do you think it is to give that, you know, hypothesis for an original date? Um, and and how, how do you do that exactly with some confidence? Well, I think it is very important if one's trying to create a sort of a secular understanding of the history and how ideas um, evolved over a period of time to um, basically help explain, in many cases, um, particularly in the case of yoga, why we're thinking and doing what we're doing today, sort of tracing back those ideas and practices to their earliest permutations and uh, uh, and seeing how that's been transmitted over the century. So dating of texts is very important. But funnily enough, actually pinning it down to a particular year or, or, or even a uh, century is often not so important. It's, it's more a matter of seeing the relationship between texts to see which text borrowed from another or which text was responding to another Um uh, sometimes that can be done very tacitly and sometimes it can be explicit where the text, where the author is citing earlier works and responding to them in that regard. And so in the end, one can develop, a, a, particularly if one's working with a corpus, such as a, a corpus of yoga texts, you can develop a, uh, an understanding of the corpus based more upon the relationship of the works with one another rather than being able to necessarily date text to a precise uh, year because most of the texts were written without without dating in mind in fact the authors often removed references to time place and anything that might have enabled a reader to to know even who wrote it basically because they're presenting the work as timeless revelation you know the, the word of shiva or uh, a text that's sort of ancient and, and authoritative so we often have many texts where we just, you know, a lot of our, our time goes into trying to understand the historical context, when they might have been written and their relationship to other works. Some manuscripts are, are dated. In yoga, it tends to be the minority, maybe I would say 20%. 
I think that's because a lot of the texts were were very casually and rudimentary, rudimentary, rudimentally scribed, perhaps even by pra- practitioners. So they're not um, professional scribes necessarily who were recording um, all the details in the final colophon of um, where, when, and who who scribed the text. But when that does happen, it's very very useful, and you only really need one or one very early manuscript um, to basically um, have a starting point, and then it might be other evidence that helps you to uh, create a window from when the text might have been written to a point where it had to have been written when we definitely know it was in existence. So we can often date texts by creating a lower and an upper limit. And in some cases that that uh, window can be quite small. In other cases it could be a century or more. And in this landscape which you of yoga studies and the texts we have available and and the texts that have been worked on and not worked on, where would you say perhaps the gaps are or the opportunities, let's say, for scholars wanting to undertake philological research in the future? Well, in terms of yoga, there's still a lot of material that hasn't been edited or uh, translated. So there's uh, a a lot of scope um, to do that work. In fact, before the Hatha Yoga project started, I'd say maybe 5% of yoga texts had been critically edited and translated. You know, we're still waiting for a critical edition and annotated translation of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. Um, Philip Muss has only done the first chapter and it's a, it's a four chapter work. And that text, of course, throughout the centuries has been uh, incredibly important and it is today for modern yoga practitioners. So it's to some extent, uh, um, uh, you know, typical of the situation that we're in, that we're trying to understand the history of yoga to answer questions about where particular teachings come from and how they were understood over the centuries without um, critically edited and translated works. Since the Hatha Yoga project has, uh, has finished uh, and when all of its outputs are published, which we hope will be in the, within the next few years, uh, I would say that for Hatha and Raja Yoga, we'll have a, a sort of a core of literary material that's been properly studied. And that, but that would still perhaps only be 20, 25% of what's available. In fact, a lot of the large compendiums that were written in the 17th and the 18th century that are significantly larger than the earlier works um, uh, still remain to be worked on. Fortunately, um, Shaman Hatley at uh, the University of Massachusetts in Boston has got got funding to work on one of those texts with myself and and James Mallinson, starting... um, in July of this year and going for three years. So that I think will be that project will achieve a great milestone in actually editing and publishing one of the large compendiums of that period. But there are um, many others that, that are of equal size and importance uh, to the, uh, to that one. Uh, 
So there's a lot of work that remains to be done. It is difficult work and and the it's difficult to predict just how much funding is going to be there for the next 10 to 20 years for this type of work. Over the past 10 years, it's perhaps been a little easier to make the case that yoga is a worldwide phenomenon. It's a, you know, a $5 billion industry or whatever it is. And, and yet so few of the texts have been studied, edited and translated as, you know, time goes on, that argument uh, becomes a little bit jaded and one has to sort of rely more on the um, perhaps the unique contribution that a text made to to the corpus and how that's relevant to today's scholarship. Um, we certainly th- that's certainly possible and it will be possible, but I think um, it's going to be harder to get the very large grants like the European Research Council grants um, to to work on uh, yoga literature, I'd say increasingly there'll have to be other dimensions, whether anthropological or based more on modern, on the modern period uh, to get that sort of funding. Perhaps projects that have a sense of bringing different disciplines and types of evidence together. Well, we certainly, we we had to do that for the Hatha Yoga project, which was why we uh, introduced the, element of ethnography into it um, because the original proposal for that grant was with the AHRC and it was just based on editing 10 texts, a philological um, uh, project, and it wasn't funded. I think it was it was given outstanding sort of uh, reviews, but in the end it was not considered urgent, or which I think sort of, well, we understood that as meaning it uh, wasn't as relevant to uh, to today's scholarship and, and I suppose the general questions that people had about yoga as they were hoping, as the, the reviewers were hoping. So we then introduced anthropology, tied it to uh, Indian sadhus, said that of course these, uh, the, you know, these manuscripts are, are rotting and uh, no one's copying them anymore or looking after them. So we need to work on this material as soon as possible. And these sadhus have this ancient knowledge but they also have smartphones and um they're they're starting to pick up and mix the sort of modern yoga with the more traditional yoga so we need to to study what uh, what they know now and that introduced an element of urgency as well as the interdisciplinary um aspect into the project so yes that was was important just to finish the interview I mean thank you for all the insight it's been a real sort of um, deep dive into the world of of philology and and what that means so thank you I wondered if you could just close by telling us a bit about your I mean your day-to-day what are you working on at the moment and then perhaps you know what can we look out for this year are there any outputs from the projects you're working on that we'll have access to um yeah, what, what's coming up this year? Well, at the moment I'm working uh, in two projects, the Hutta Pradipika project, which uh, has been going for a year, and it's a three-year project, so we have two years left, and we're basically producing a critical edition, an annotated translation uh, of, of the entire text. 
as well as um, a book or a long article on the reception history of that text. That's going very well. Uh, we've collected, I think, over 100 manuscripts, and we've sort of, to some extent, narrowed, narrowed those down um, to a sort of a core group that we're working most closely with. But we're also still making efforts to get more manuscripts. As I mentioned before, there's um, probably several hundred manuscripts of the Hatha Pradipika available uh, in um, India. Uh, and that will, as I say, result in a critical edition and perhaps a book or a long article um, on the text. I'm also working on the Sushruta project, which um, is trying to edit and translate the uh, earliest version of the Sushruta Samhita based on a very old uh, and important manuscript at the National Archives of Kathmandu. And that project has been going for just over a year as well, and it's uh, it's doing very well. It's, I think, at the cutting edge of a lot of the new technology that can be used to edit texts. So I'm learning a lot uh, from the principal investigator, Dominic Wiasik, about that. And, and that project is in the midst of transcribing the oldest manuscript, as well as editing specific chapters that we think are particularly important for understanding the earlier version of the Sushruta and how it differs from uh, more recent versions. And you said, what outputs can we expect? Well, the outputs from the Hatha Yoga project are in progress. Uh, two books that I've written uh, have passed peer review. One is on the Amaralga. That's one of the earliest texts to teach uh, Hatha and Raja Yoga, perhaps the earliest. Um, and that will include a critical edition and translation of uh, the two early versions of the, the two early recensions that we have of that text, which differ, I, I would say, significantly from a diplomatic transcript that was published by Kalyani Malik in 1954 in her book on the, on the Nats. The second book that I've written in collaboration with uh, Mark Sim Singleton and James Allenson is on the Hatha Bhyasa Padati, and that has also passed peer review, and we're just really incorporating the reviewers' comments and hope to finalise it for publication this year. And that will be released, I hope, with the video footage that my wife Jacqueline Hargreaves has been working on in reconstructing the asana practice of the Hatha Bhyasa Padati. Of course, her work was showcased at the exhibition at the Brunei Gallery that, uh, that we had towards the end of the Hatha Yoga project. It was about our research. So more of that video footage will be coming out. And then there's the other books that, that have been promised for the Hatha Yoga project. One of those is very close to being submitted uh, for peer review. So that will be the third one that I'm involved in. I really have to finish writing another three books that the main one of the main authors on for, the, for that project not much to do then Jason <laughs> uh, yes yes too much to do and then there's also articles in in various stages of completion one on uh, three distinct collections of asanas that were practiced in particular regions of India from probably the 18th to early 19th century that we've managed to to get fairly um, extensive manuscript and material evidence for. Again, Jacqueline Hargreaves and myself are working on that article and we hope it will be published in a, a volume of uh, collected 
essays that Mark Singleton and Daniela Bevilacqua are editing uh, was the proceeds of a conference that they held uh, for the Hatha Yoga Project on the various physical practices that are related to um, to yoga or might be related to yoga. Uh, that should appear to, I think, uh, this year, as well as an, an article that I've written and submitted for, to peer review with um, Vishwanath Gupta, who was one of the research researchers, Indian researchers for the Hatha Yoga Project working at the uh, EFEO in Pondicherry. And we've written an article together on a yoga text which we came across while traveling together around various uh, libraries in South India. And we looked at the manuscript and neither of us were able to identify the text. In fact, it, um, well, at that point in time, I'd never heard of the name. Uh, It hasn't been mentioned in in any secondary source. Um, And it's only since that we found citations of it in other texts. Um, and one of them was quite early, 15th century uh, commentary. So uh, we've produced an article on that text and, and that involved transcribing the text, reading it, um, and then finding the texts that the author had borrowed from and so forth. We hope to one day produce a critical edition and an annotated translation, but at this point we've just written an article on it to bring the work to to the attention of the scholarly community because it's quite interesting and at this point I don't think anyone knows about it. Can you share the name of the text? Yes, the Yogaranava, the Ocean of Yoga. It's a compilation. It's not large by the standards of the compilations that were put together in the 17th and 18th century, but it was probably written in the 14th century. And for that particular period, it was uh, in some ways quite an ambitious attempt to integrate different types of yoga on a a larger scale than we um, uh, see at that time. Well, I'll definitely look forward to that that article. It must have been an exciting find the moment you realised it was something you hadn't come across before or couldn't quickly place. Yes, yes. And that's not, as I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, interview, that's not uncommon in, uh, in in this field. I have uh, some manuscripts and works on, on my hard drive that I'm still trying to identify and, um, uh, and, and understand. Uh, there's a lot of fragments that one comes across when one looks at manuscripts, you know, texts that don't have a beginning and don't have an end and you you sort of left with part of it and um it and it's not always possible to trace it so uh you know those type of texts unfortunately stay in a state of suspension because until you find a manuscript that that has the whole work or is in good enough condition uh you know to work on uh it, it there's not much you can do with it um so Yes, as I, as I say, if, the, if, if there were um, broader efforts to coordinate the availability of material in, in, in India, as well as other libraries in Europe, and to make them more readily available, then I'm, I think that would be a, um, a very effective way of advancing the, um, the research in our field. 
because a lot of these fragments and texts that we haven't identified, you could, if, if a database were created of the various manuscripts we have, we could probably piece more material together. Is that something you can see happening? It's it's starting to happen with the digitization of collections, definitely, because as they digitize and put their collections up on the internet, then of course, uh, if I come across a reference to a text that I don't know, and I search for it on on the internet, and I see, and I find it within a particular collection, well, I can immediately look at it and uh, and see whether it's it's helpful or not. Um, so yes, it's advancing to that degree, but it's, it's very slow. And there's a lot of institutions that are resisting that uh, development that are sort of wanting to keep their um, collection hidden or protected and feel that if they open it up um, to international scholarship, that, that it will somehow devalue the collection or, um, uh, yeah, or, or they might even lose their jobs if, if nobody comes to the library to, um, to consult it. So, yes, so it's it's a slow process. And I think in India it probably needs a more coordinated effort from the government. I think the government has tried in various ways. The Ministry of Ayush has a sort of a cataloguing pro- project. There's also the Namami uh, project funded by the Indira Gandhi um, Foundation, which was a national project to digitise manuscripts, and that sort of um, came to a grinding halt and a lot of the... Um, scans that they took have not been accessible or of good enough quality to use. Um, so yes, these these efforts are, are needed, um, uh, really. But but who knows whether, whether they'll be successful or not? In the meantime, you'll continue your detective work and hope some other people join the mission. <laughs> mm, yes, yeah, definitely. Well. Thank you so much for your time, Jason. It's um, It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And um, yeah, as I said, very insightful. So thank you. Yes. Well, thanks, Vicky, for the, for the interview and uh, best of luck with your uh, research and study. Thank you.